Alright, hello. My name is Dorian Eskridge, and this is the Vikings Podcast. Today I am with the art, art expert, Deasia Gates. Hello, Deasia. Hello, Dorian. Alright, and today we're going to be talking about how World War One influenced art. So, during World War One, uh, it introduced modernism to the world, which, while it was a thing before World War One, it only got furthered by the trauma, or accelerated, I should say, by the trauma of the war. War One redesigned the notion of what art is the same way it altered the perception of what war is. Horrors of modern warfare during and after World War One, surrealist and expressionist devised wobbly, chopped up perspectives and nightmarish visions of fractured, of fractured human bodies and splintered societies slouching towards moral, moral chaos. Art was used to promote war. Art is used to oppose war. Art was looted in the co- in the course of World War One. Looted art was also used to finance wars. Art was used to recover from world war. Because of World War I, artists rejected traditional styles. Dada artists rejected tradition and believed there was no sense or truth in the world. Abstract and surrealism came out came about. Dada art was an art movement formed during World War from the formed during the first World War in Zurich in a reaction to the horrors and folly of the war. The art produced by Dada artists is often satirical and nonsensical in nature. So, basically, we're here today. Well, I'm here to ask questions. DA is here to, you know, answer those questions, hopefully, about one main artist by the name of Otto Dix. So, Otto Dix is a very interesting figure because a lot of his works were actually um, confiscated by Nazis after the First World War. But he painted mainly portraits and he fought in the First World War. And in his words, he painted uh, Life Undiluted which was associated with Germany's new objectivity. This used a style that followed some of the some type of reality that was very exaggerated and not exactly reality. Now, so the first piece, I'm sure I should be displaying, I'm sorry. First piece I'm displaying is an art piece called Art of the Apocalypse. So Deja, I like to I like to ask you, what do you think this painting is depicting? So I think the painting is depicting well, it depicts five humans wearing gas masks roaming the bodies of dead animals and even humans under a gas attack. Okay, so knowing all this, what do you think the message is behind this piece? Well, I think the message behind the piece was to show the horrors of the gas apocalypse that actually happened on Europe's soil about 106 years ago. Alright, do you think this piece does good in conveying the message? when you look at the piece the vibe you get from it is very depressing because it has no colors and the details of it like the rats the bones and the decay of it just gets that horrific um armageddon vibe okay okay uh like your thoughts on this first on the first piece now moving on to the second piece so we don't run out of time um this piece is called the collapsed trench by otto dick so I'm going to ask mostly the same questions. What do you think this painting is? Or what is this painting depicting? This painting depicts a trench that was very roughly destroyed by the enemy. You can see bones. You can see a lifeless soldier. Maybe even two. Um, there's torn cloth, the decay, which gives off like the other one, the Armageddon. Okay, okay. So what do you think the message behind this one was as compared to the first one? Show people the physical and emotional 
emotional damage of the war and what they actually experienced mm-hmm. during the war. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. okay. So, having seen these two pieces, do you think, would your opinion be on Otto Dix? Do you think he's pro-war or anti-war? Nah, this guy is very anti-war. He has about 128 pieces. All of them are anti-war. Um, which is why he uses his art to protest against it. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have for this section. And I thank you, DeAsia, for being here. And I hope that our listeners got a slight a slighter a slight deeper understanding of what art was like after the war and what uh the war caused art to be like so uh, thank you for being here thank you for having me Welcome to the Leaders Podcast. I'm Andy. I'm Sergey. And today we're going to talk about the leaders of World War I. So our first leader for today is Luigi Cadorna. Not to be mixed up with Mario's brother. Cadorna was born September 4th, 1850 in Verbania, Italy. In the beginning of the war, the Italian army was extremely unprepared to go into war, so Cadorna helped them organize as the general. He was commissioned as lieutenant in the army and quickly climbed the ranks and launched his first attacks on the Austrians on May 23rd, 1915. He was giving commands on the Austro-Italian frontier. Sadly, Luigi died 13 years later on December 21st, 1928. Rest in peace, Luigi. May you be bouncing on those mushrooms in heaven. Our next leader is Pasha. The car shop in Asheville? No, the person in Pasha. He was born on November 22nd, 1881. So you mean the man with the curly mustache that was leading the Ottoman government from 1913 to 1918? Yes, but he didn't just lead the government. He also attempted to organize Turkic people of Central Asia against the Soviets. Which didn't end well for them because they still lost, but he also led the coup d'etat of January 23rd, 1913, which restored his power. And he was a minister of war who signed a defensive alliance with Germany against Russia. But gladly he died on August 4th, 1922 in Tajikistan, which means he caused a lot less problems for us. So just because he caused problems with the United States, he deserves to die? Choose your battles wisely. And personally, I always choose with the winning size. Go colonies. Isn't your mom from Africa? (gasps) That's besides the point. No, that's not sliding with the wrong people, especially in this time. Next, we have Radomir Putnik, born in, in Serbia on January 24th, 1857. He was the Serbian army commander victorious against the Austrians in 1914. He was commissioned in 1866. He was chief of the staff uh, from 1903 to 1960, and he was a commander in chief in the wars. He was a field marshal in Turkey, and when World War I began, he was escorted to Romania. He died May 17th in 1917 in France. Thank you for listening. Until next time, bye. inspirational women podcast by yours truly Eden Heston. Today I'll be interviewing three outstanding and inspirational women from the war. Talking to our first woman today we are going to listen to a never heard interview from back in 1915 when we interviewed Edith Cabell from St. Gilles prison. 
Welcome to the show, Edith. I'm glad you decided to sit down and talk to me about your experiences as a nurse during the war. Why don't you introduce yourself, Miss Cavell? Thank you for having me. Before getting arrested, I was a British nurse. I would help injured soldiers from both Central and Allied powers. Many British citizens were wondering what actions led to your arrest. That's a great question. I would hide Allied soldiers in the building provided with false papers and give them help to escape to friendly territories. I was arrested in October and was found guilty. How are the working conditions as a nurse during your time in the war? I would work 12 hours at a time with no breaks and very little time for my personal life. Workdays were long and grueling. The things I would see were horrible. There were many people who died every day. Thank you for your time and willingness to speak with me. Now that we have listened to Cavill's interview, it's time to bring in Mary MacArthur. Welcome to the show, Mary. I'm glad you decided to sit down and talk to me about your experiences working in the factories. Why don't you introduce yourself to the viewers who are tuned in? Thank you, Eden. I am a Ministry of Munitions that is a British government position to oversee and coordinate the production going on in the factory for the war. I also help encourage women to start working in the factories. What are the working conditions like in the factories? The conditions are very poor. There were loud noises that made many women lose their hearing. The hours are long and we get short breaks. The manual labor is tough, but they are at risk for many harmful materials like poison gas, and TNT. Did anyone get injured or killed while working in the factories? Sadly, yes. 73 people were killed and 400 injured in a factory in the east end of London this year. 35 women were killed last year in 1916 due to an explosion. How do you feel about the hourly rage for women who work in the factories? I feel like they should be higher. With the poor conditions we deal with in the factories and the long hours we work, a lot of lives have been lost in the factories. The wage is very low. Thank you for speaking with me and telling your of what happens in the factories. Now we will bring in the next woman, Maria Bakreva. Welcome to the show, Maria. I'm glad you decided to sit down and talk to me about your experiences in the military. Why don't you introduce yourself to the viewers? Thank you for having me. I'm a Russian soldier. I'm also the first Russian woman to command a military unit. Very impressive. What did you do in the war front? I endured the barrage of enemy artillery and rescued wounded from the um, no man's land. I also volunteered for scouting missions. I was decorated three times for my work on the war front. So what is the women's battalion? The women's battalion is an all-female combat unit formed after the February Revolution by the Russian provisional government in the last-ditch effort to inspire the mass of war-weary soldiers to continue fighting. Thank you for taking time to speak with me and talk to me about your experiences as a female soldier. We had the opportunity to listen to and talk with three amazing women today, Edith Cavill, Mary MacArthur, and Maria Bakreva. They all did different jobs, but they were all a key part to helping in the war. This is the Inspirational Women podcast. Tune in next week to hear more about Inspirational Women.
that was just I can't stop me by twice. I wonder if that's what Germany thought in World War One. Speaking of the topic, let's talk about the geography during the time. Geography played a big role in World War One, ranging from trench warfare to having Mexico below America. We are trying our best to show the significance of the geography during World War One during our time together. First up, let's talk about trench warfare. World War One was all about creating diversions and weather patterns to help the other side win. Trenches were long, narrow, and mile-long ditches that dug into the ground where soldiers lived. These were mainly prevalent on the Western Front. Speaking of the Western Front, let's talk a little bit more about fronts. According to the aggressive military strategy known as the Siphoning Plan, Germany began fighting World War One on two fronts, invading France through neutral Belgium in the West and confronting Russia in the East. This actually put the Central Powers at a disadvantage. Being in the middle allowed for them to be attacked on either side and have to be occupied on both sides. World War I also redrew the world map and reshaped many borders in Europe. Exactly. The Austro-Hungarian Empire dissolved into Austria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia. When the Ottoman Empire collapsed, Turkey was established. And with the collapse of the Russian Empire, it created Poland, the Baltics, and Finland. Now let's talk about another important geographical feature, that being Mexico is directly below America. One of the main reasons America joined the Great War was because of the Zimmerman Telegram. In January 1917, British cryptographers deciphered a telegram from German Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmerman to German Minister to Mexico, Heinrich von Eckhardt, offering United States territory to Mexico in return for joining the German cause. They were offering the lost land of the treaty Guadalupe Hidalgo, hashtag best treaty ever. Germany was hoping to keep America occupied overseas if Mexico had joined the war. America would have had an enemy in their own backyard. However, as mentioned before, the British intercepted this message and ultimately was one of the main reasons America joined the Great War. Geography played a big key role here in the fact that they were referring to the lost Mexican land and that Mexico was right below America. So, did you know that a Bosnian nationalist killed Archduke first Franz Ferdinand? Actually, I did know that. Did you know that Austria demanded that Serbia, who is below Austria, who reportedly supported the assassins, turned over anyone who was involved in the plot? I didn't know that. As a matter of fact, when Serbia refused, Austria declared war, thus beginning World War One. Bosnia was a little part of Austria-Hungary, and to sum it up, Bosnia wanted to be a part of Serbia instead, thus the assassination. You're such a know-it-all. Wow, that's rude. But since I'm a know-it-all, you talk about why and where battles took place. I'll be delighted to. The second battle of the Marne took place near the Marne River in the Champagne region of France. It was the last major offensive battle for Germany on the Western Front. The, the attack failed when a counterattack supported by several hundred tanks overwhelmed them. As Allied troops blunted the German advance, they started the counteroffensive that would ultimately win the war. The geographical importance to remember here is that it impacted the Western Front. Another battle is the 100-Day Offense. The 100-Day Offense was a series of attacks by the Allied troops at the end of the war, starting on August 8, 1918, and ending with the armistice on November 11th. The offensive led to the defeat of the German army. By the summer of 1918, German attacks in the war had halted. Up and down the Western Front, the initiative depended on the readiness of the Allies, who now had more soldiers, weapons, and material than the Germans. The Allies coordinated attacks across the entire front starting on August 8th the British Empire forces attacked in northern France across the city of Armes in the middle the French pushed against the Germans defense known as the Heidenberg land line at the southern end of the Allied attack the Americans under General Pershing attacked in mid-September pushing the Germans to Saint Mihail before beginning a major offensive on September 26th in Meuse-Argonne. This coordinated effort forced German defenses to melt away. 
For the first time, soldiers on the ground coordinated their efforts alongside tanks, planes, and artillery, taking the fight out of the trenches. Point is, there were many geographical importance during World War I, and land was changing after the Great War. Agreed. Land such as Poland was created due to the war, and land was also taken away. Land such as Alsace-Lorraine was given to the France, and land was also given to Italy. Well, that's enough from us. We hope that you were able to learn something from this little conversation, even though we covered a little bit about geography during World War I. There's so much, much more to it. Thank you for listening, and now back to our Now playing Fancy by Twice. Hello, my name is Josh. And my name is Gabriel. World War I had many different weapons that the Army used. From rifles to tanks, weapons played a revolutionary part in the Great War. First up, we have bayonets. Bayonets were a widely used tool that were used for the first time in this war. They were knives that we put at the very end of gun barrels. They mostly were there for the use of close hand combat. They were also provided to all infantrymen in the armies. The next weapon up is machine guns. During World War I, machine guns were based on the Hiram Maxims 84 design. They were guns that could shoot multiple bullets per second. These guns had the ability to mow down many soldiers who dared to come out from their trenches. A lot of speculation in armies at the time was that machine guns were to replace the rifles. Another weapon were mortars. Mortars are portable, short-barreled artillery that shoots explosive projectiles at a magnificent distance. They could shoot up to 20 rounds per minute. Mortars can shoot up to 3,600 feet away. Then we have the good old rifles. Rifles are high-powered guns that were used to shoot from far range. Famous rifles used in the war were the M1897 trench gun, 1917 at the Enfield and Springfield 1903 rifle. These rifles were used to shoot from far range at enemy trenches. They were mo the most common type of weapon used in the war. We also have the flamethrowers. They were weapons used to shoot flames. They were mostly used to cause a shock effect to the opposing soldiers and to also burn down huts and buildings. Flamethrowers are used to make enemies evacuate unaccessible areas. Flamethrowers is the most feared weapon in World War I. Next is poison gas. Poison gas is fired over long distances, aimed at the enemy's trenches. Poison gas is made from lethal chlorine gases. The effects of the poison gas is blistering of the skin. It can also cause eye and lung damage. Most of the time, it is untreatable and the victim ends up dying. Last on the list is tanks. This was the first time that we saw tanks used in warfare. They were vehicles that weighed more than a dozen tons, moved slowly, and broke down frequently. For this reason, in this war, we were regarded as having a significant role in the war. Tanks are mostly used for threats to scare opposing enemies. Welcome back to Insert Good Podcast Name Here. I'm your host, Josh. And I'm your host, Lauren. 
And today, we're here to discuss propaganda and its effects on the nations involved in World War I. Propaganda has been used for centuries, even as far back in ancient Rome and Greece. So why is it such a big deal for this time? Because of the way it was used and to a great extent. Before World War I, propaganda was not nearly as common, especially when being used by governments. It makes sense why it started to spread so quickly, though. World War I was a total war. It affected everyone in the countries participating, and even some who were neutral. So world leaders needed a way to justify to the people that the war was worth all of its effects. They needed a way to inspire and give hope to the people. But also a way to make their enemies look bad to outsiders. Even if a country wasn't fighting in the war, you want their help and you want them to only help you. So propaganda was one way to enforce the idea that your enemies were evil and heartless, so no one should support them. Propaganda was focused on a lot of topics and created in many forms. The most common form of propaganda, and probably the first to come to mind for most people, are the posters. There were ones urging women to help the war effort on the home side. Once telling eligible men it was their duty <laughs> to join the war effort and fight for their country. Even ones convincing citizens to stop buying food and grow what they could to save it for the soldiers. Oh yeah, the victory gardens. Produce more and consume less became a way of life in America. And speaking of consuming less, let's talk about the rationing that happened during the war. Yeah, what was rationing with that? Get it? Like what was happening, but I said rationing? Yeah, I got it. Anyway, during World War I, rationing was done to help provide resources for soldiers during the war. Through the use of propaganda, citizens were urged to consume less products such as food, fuel, and tires, cigarettes, and lighters for cigarettes. Like we mentioned before, Victory Gardens were one way American citizens helped with the rationing. By growing their own food, more food could be spared for the soldiers fighting overseas. Sounds like that could really grow on you. Okay, I'll stop now. Anyway, like you said, rationing then wasn't only about food. Other materials and goods were also needed, and citizens were urged to go without. World War I was the first war to make use of vehicles such as planes and tanks, and trucks were also used to transport soldiers and supplies around. Because of this, fuel and tires needed to be rationed to allow the military to have consistent access to fuel and tires needed to keep all the vehicles up and running. I guess you could say that fuel was a prime example of a rationed resource. Get it? Because fuel is combustible and can be primed like an explosive? Sorry, I had to just do one more. That's it. You're getting muted. Anyways, rationing on the home front and propaganda played important parts in winning the war overseas. Propaganda has always been one of the greatest tools of manipulation of the public, and similar techniques are still being used by today's politicians. Hopefully we won't have more war propaganda here in America anytime soon, though. Aha! So that's where the mute button is. Now that I can talk again, maybe we could come to an armistice about this whole muting thing? <sighs> Fine, but you're getting the outro, though. Alright, insert outro here. Thank you.